Hi, welcome to the Mamas Know Best, We Got Something to Say podcast. For months, we take time to prepare and educate ourselves on this new adventure of motherhood. But as we all know, once the baby is born, we're still left with so many questions and need all the help we can get. Women really should have a sense of empowerment as they begin to experience these life-changing moments. And no one mother has it all figured out. However, the more informed we are, the better decisions we can make that will positively affect us and our family. And that's what this podcast is about. Sharing honest, raw, and real conversations about motherhood, life, and all of the crazy, messy, beautiful in-betweens to hopefully educate, empower, and support the next mother on her motherhood journey. So sit back and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Mamas Know Best. We got something to say podcast. We have a very special guest, Mrs. Beth Alhanti, who is a solutions-focused licensed mental health counselor, helping adults, teens, and couples deal with the hurdles faced at different phases of their life. Beth teaches tools to deal with life's current changes and challenges while making every day happier and more fulfilling. She graduated from Lynn University with a master's in psychology and completed practicum training at one of Florida's premier counseling facilities. She has extensive counseling experience in anxiety, depression, substance abuse, trauma, including EMDR therapy and career counseling. In addition, she spent several years in the business world working for corporations, including Johnson & Johnson and Medtronic. Her mission is to help people work through their issues that are overwhelming, as she believes everyone deserves a happy life. Beth, how are you today? I'm terrific. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Okay, let's jump right to it. For my icebreaker round, what is your favorite book or one that you like to recommend to people? You know what? In all honesty, I really like light escapist stuff. You know, I think free time is great for a beach read and give me, you know, a Nora Roberts or a Jennifer Weiner any day and I'm, I'm up for it. Love it. And what is your superpower or superpowers? I think I would like to say I'm something called a connector. If you need a urologist or an electrician or a new employee, give me a call. I I love putting people together and I've even got six marriages under my belt. Ah, nice. What is your favorite holiday? Thanksgiving. No doubt about it. No gifts, no pressure for that. Love it. What are the values that guide you and your family? I think it's to do your best, to be a good person, a loyal friend, a hard worker, a loving partner, and um, also to be good to yourself. And if you could travel anywhere right now, where would you go? Anywhere. I I think we're all so pinned up right now. I I mean, I went to school in London, so I am very anxious to take my husband to see some of my favorite places from, you know, 25 years ago. But Really? You, you want to put me on a plane anywhere? I'm ready to go. Love it. And what has motherhood taught you? I think to let go. Every stage of motherhood after in- infancy is really about letting them gain appropriate independence. And, you know, I don't want them to go hog wild, but, I, you know, you, you got to let them let them grow. Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest parts about motherhood, but at 100%, you know, you've got to trust that you've done the best that you can and that 
you know, they will adhere to or follow or have your ear, you know, your voice in the back of their head. Right. So yeah, I, I like that. Okay. Do you want to maybe tell my listeners a little bit more about you, maybe your family life, the ages of your children, and then you can start discussing your journey into becoming a licensed um, mental health counselor. Sure. Well, I grew up right here in Florida, but then I spread my wings and went to Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. Uh, I met my husband in New York, and then we ended up coming down here. We've been here for 25 years, and we raised our two, well, my little boys, but they're 21 and 23 now, and um, just love living in Coral Springs and Parkland and, and have developed a nice life for ourselves here. I, as you read in my bio, I was in medical device sales for many years, and about nine years ago, I was schlepping around 90 pounds of equipment. I'll never forget the day. It was 90 something degrees out and I was lifting that equipment up four stairs. And I thought, what am I gonna do with the next 20 years of my career? Because it's, it's not gonna be doing this. And I loved it, but realized it was time for a change. And I had had three different episodes in my life where I saw a counselor twice for individual counseling and once for couples counseling, got tremendous benefit out of it. And I kind of wanted to pay it forward. So I went back to school and here I am. Wow. Nine years later. Yeah. Wow. So you pivoted. And how was that to pivot when you've been in this field or this career for a long time and go to a completely different basically career path and how has that been since I'm assuming you have no regrets (laughs) you know I don't at first it was it was really scary and I I you know had to eat an airplane one bite at a time I took the first semester of courses all at night so I worked full time to really dip my toe in and see if I wanted to do this and it was hard because you know I had so many friends and so much experience but the work was very exciting and f- fulfilling and every year has been better than the last. Like I said, you know, I, I got another, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of working left. So it seemed like a logical decision. I could either do it and, and be there or I could not do it and wonder for the rest of my life. What if? I love that. And if you don't mind telling me in the bio that you have extensive experience with anxiety, depression, substance abuse, trauma, including EMDR therapy, if you don't mind maybe covering a little bit of what EMDR therapy is and why did you choose to kind of go, and I don't know if there's maybe different niches or areas that you can go into of why you chose to have to go that route, to go into the anxiety, depression stage, as opposed to maybe doing like general family counseling or marriage counseling. Sure. And and I have a general practice and I have a lot of extra training with anxiety and actually couples counseling. The the reason I went into EMDR, which is the most clinically demonstrated method of trauma therapy, there's all kinds of offshoots of it, but EMDR is the gold standard. And it's not a talk therapy in that it's an experiential method. I always liken it to you know, Ebenezer Scrooge going back and visiting his past. It's very experiential, although it's not hypnosis, you're totally conscious. And it's a way of exploring your past traumas, big or small. It, it, it could be something like the death of a parent, but it also could be, you know, some bullying that you went through 
that really shaped you as a child or as a young person. And it, it allows you to see it from an objective, logical point of view and take the shame and guilt out of it and move forward. So it, it, it's a beautiful way of, of letting go. And as an EMDR therapist, you're required to go through the treatment as well as practice it. So I can speak for myself and hundreds of clients that I've worked with that have gotten great benefit from it. So when you say really any kind of trauma, is it trauma-based? I guess to your point, it could be small, it could be big trauma, anything. I would imagine when you say the word trauma, it's anything that has affected you greatly in whatever aspect that is. Am I correct in saying that? It's a negative event in your life that reshapes the way that you think about yourself. So as I said, it could be, you know, just a verbally abusive parent. It could be learning that a grandma that you were really close to passed away. It, it, it doesn't have to be a giant trauma. It, it's just something that affected you. And interestingly, it shapes your brain. And then when you, other negative things happen to you, you kind of go to that negative thought. I'm not good enough. I'm bad. I should have done something. I'm invisible. You know, those are all negative core values that develop out of traumas. And then that bell gets rung over and over again, whenever anything negative happens. So we try to reshape that into, I am good enough, or I can be seen, or I did what I could, or I can control what I can. So we work to reshape the way that you see the event. And, and again, take the shame and guilt out of it. And because I've just now recently heard of EMDR therapy, are we now hearing more of it because it is a fairly new, in quotes I'm putting here, practice? Or is it because we're having more open and transparent discussions about mental health in general? I think it's a little bit of all of that. It was actually developed during the Afghan wars. You know, I think it's in the late 90s, right? We used it for soldiers coming back from war for the PTSD that they suffered. But it's been used so much. And as I said, it's been so successful that now it's becoming much more mainstream. It's not only being used for trauma, but it's being used for anxiety issues, substance abuse, personality disorder issues. So it's much more widely recognized and, and clinically demonstrated to be effective. If one of my listeners wanted to find out more about that or to get that kind of therapy, I would imagine they'd have to seek out a particular therapist, again, like you said, that has that specific EMDR therapy training. Absolutely. And, and I would put it even further to say that their, their training should be through EMDRIA. It's, it's the most recognized association. And, and, you know, I think EMDR is very clinician based on how successful it is. You have to do a lot of it and you have to be about a little flexible about leading the client, but not totally directing them. So it's, it's a very delicate balance. Hence the specialized training because you can't project or add, but you're just helping them either walk open through up it. or walk through it. Correct. Interesting. Just fascinating to me that I had heard again through my client who goes through the EMDR therapy. And I was like, you know, it's good to know that a lot of these things are coming out more. Right. And like you said, it's something that was created in the late nineties for soldiers that now, you know, can benefit other people that have also had 
traumatic things and whatever aspect that is, I think is a, is a great thing. And I'm, I'm happy to share that on my platform here so people can know about it if they didn't know about it. Now, you also do substance abuse and abuse therapy. What are some misconceptions? Substance abuse runs through my family. What are some misconceptions about people with substance abuse issues that we can possibly clear up now that maybe sure. the general public, you know, has? Sure. I, I mean, a lot of research has proven that substance abuse stems from trauma. And again, it could be a big one, but it could be a little one. You know, I was uh, talking to a client who just was bullied subtle bullying, not hitting or anything like that, but subtle bullying throughout childhood in their school system. And, and then at any point, uh, could be college when you're partying at 20, or it could be you know, a person in their 40s taking oxycodone for a back injury or, or pain medicine for, for a neck injury. And those traumas are somehow triggered. Those drugs or alcohol that for other people just eases up pain or gives you a little party feeling and you're done with it, it triggers this chemical reaction in the body and, and it's, it's a dependence. And like I said, it could be from a fifth use or it could be from a 50th use. There's many people that drank socially for years and all of a sudden have a drinking problem. So they're just normal people who don't have the normal coping methods or all the coping methods or recent coping methods for things that have happened to them that make them seek out sort of self-medication. It, it's a lifelong struggle. I kind of always say once the flip, the switch is flipped, it's flipped. When you go from, you know, drinking a little too much or maybe taking a sleeping pill a little too often to actually having trouble functioning in your marriage life, your social life, your work life, then you have to be vigilant for the rest of your life and your family does. And, and it's called recovery. You're in recovery. You're never recovered from it. And, and you've got to always keep, keep yourself vigilant. And that scares me because number one, substance abuse runs in the family. And let me ask, you hear people say, like I'm saying addiction runs in the family. Is that truly hereditary? Is that something that I think I even read an article, there was someone had passed and I think it was an adoptive child and the parents wish they would have known that I guess they found out afterwards that his parents suffered, let's say from substance abuse. So in essence, like I said, is that true? Can that be hereditary? Is that something that's quote unquote in the blood? They pass it down all those terms that you hear. Yes and no. We, we talk about three components to any mental health issue, whether it's substance abuse, depression, uh, bipolar disorder, personality disorders, there's three components. One is the biological, so there can be a genetic component. There's also the psychological, like we talk about how you were raised, any traumas that you went through, any real major events that you never really learn to cope with properly. That's the social factor, uh, the, the psychological factor. And then there's the social factor, you know, who you're hanging around with, what your influences are. So it doesn't take just one of them to trigger it. If you know one of them is there, you know, it's, it's better to be more vigilant and more aware, but it, it doesn't mean it's going to happen to you, but it also means you need, just like if diabetes ran in your family, you would want to be 
careful about your diet and exercise. You, you keep it in mind, maybe more than somebody else. You have to be a little bit more conscious or conscientious yeah. of the decisions that you're making, which goes yeah. to my next question being that you're, you're a parent, I'm a parent. What are some warning signs? Like you hear these fentanyl overdoses and these, the opioid crisis, and it just scares me to no end because of how strong these drugs are. And, you know, some of these children are honor roll students. They've never done drugs before. And, you know, I was talking to my parents. I'm like, I think gone are the days of like the experimental drugs, right? That maybe was done, you know, in the 70s, 80s. And then of course we had the the, the crack epidemic and all of that. And then, you know, you hear even still some more ex- experimental. I think now it's like that one time can can kill, you know, someone who's at say trying a drug for the first time. So what are some warning signs parents should look out for if they suspect their children may be doing drugs and maybe they're afraid of confronting them for fear that they'll further withdraw? Like how can parents navigate that? Because keep in mind, I have a lot of listeners that also have older children and I am trying to be more mindful of catering to that because I think a lot of times we hear like it's toddlers and newborns and oh do this with your toddler and newborns and then it's like well what about my teenage kids when we're navigating social media and more peer pressure so speak on that you know how can what are some signs that parents can look out for sure well and some of what I'm going to say may be a little controversial and if anybody wants to talk to me about it further I understand and we can but you know it's you're, you're looking for change are they more social? Are they less social? Are they isolating? And the biggest one is a drop in grades. You got to trust your gut. When I start worrying about a kid, boundaries go out the window a little bit. You, if you are really getting concerned, the idea that you're going to check their backpack or check their room or touch base with some teachers, there's nothing wrong with that. You, you know, you, you have to be vigilant. And I agree. Sorry to cut you off, but I, I guess I can see where the controversy controversy comes in because I know some people are like, well, you have to respect boundaries. But to your point, and I think I agree, especially in this day and age where it can truly be a life or death matter. Heck yeah, I want to check and be like, hey, what's going on? And you might have to do some little background digging to kind of get everything in context, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I would imagine. I know that is definitely something that I would do. <laughs> so let me just put that. Well, and I, out there. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. To, that's part of the controversy. And here's the flip side. You kind of have to be careful about how you handle marijuana because unfortunately it is all over our high schools. And in some extent, it's all over our middle schools and with vapes, it's getting even worse. You know, it depends on the child. It depends on the age, but you have to have very open conversations. And it, you know, it's one thing if they're smoking a little weed at some parties or hanging out with a bunch of friends, it's going to be difficult to control. I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's when they're using it every day or they're using it alone or they're using it before they go to school because they're socially anxious or they have to use it to go to sleep. I'm very against giving anyone, honestly, marijuana for anxiety. I think there are better drugs for it. Medical uses for marijuana can be, you know, Parkinson's, cancer, spasms, seizures. There's all kinds of wonderful reasons to use marijuana for medical reasons. I think there are far better, safer, less mood altering drugs than, than weed for anxiety and depression. But I'm not saying I condone that the kids are using this stuff. But it is a reality. And if you chomp down on them too hard, it often 
means more secrecy and more dangerous situations. So you gotta figure a fine line. And I'll go one step further. If you do find that your kid is smoking weed a lot, I'm very cautious about treatment centers for just weed because unfortunately the kids learn so much more there. So I would try a lot of other interventions, whether it's seeing a, a substance abuse counselor, doing some substance abuse testing at home. And we'll talk more about like rewards and consequences systems, but sending a kid to treatment for just weed is a very cautionary event. And when you say that they'll learn more, you mean like learn more about other drugs and other ways? A hundred percent, hundred percent. Because most of the kids in treatment are not there for weed. They're there for benzodiazepines, which is like Xanax, Valium, Ativan, or that's the biggie. Some, sometimes heroin, sometimes Molly, but I, I don't want their education increase if at all possible to avoid. No, it makes sense. It does make sense. And so basically I, it goes back to your original point, which was you have to have open conversations. You have to be as truthful and honest as possible with your children. Because again, going back to my initial comment of this was it can just take one time. So maybe you do have a child that their grades are not slipping. They're functioning. They're in their sports. Everything is good. But then they meet that one person that's, hey, you want to try this at a party? And they're like, sure. And then all of a sudden they're hooked. Exactly. You got to warn them about how much stuff is now laced with fentanyl. Almost any drug can be laced. So you got to be really careful. It, it's not usually that a kid smokes marijuana or even takes a molly and dies. It's that it's laced with something. That's my so that's the big danger. Correct. Which is why I said the experimental part where, you know, where maybe you can smoke a little marijuana, even back when, you know, I remember that was like the biggest taboo taboo. I knew people that did harder drugs, but you know, that wasn't in my radar. It was like, Oh my God, let's smoke a little marijuana. But I never had any fear that it would ever be late. Now we're, you know, so far gone with where it is that that's correct. I think it's, it's, it's very, very scary. And it's yeah. something that I, I, that I do think about as my son navigates and gets older, you know, he's only four, he's in preschool. <laughs> yeah, a little while. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But you know, middle school and high school, and then what's going to even be then. But I also want to speak just briefly you know, there's this whole culture with moms of wine culture and everything is a glass of wine. And it's a little comical if you are on social media and you see the memes, but I had someone tell me that they're like, you'll be surprised that a lot of women that they do see in their AA meetings or whatever their substance abuse meeting group meetings, it started from that. And a lot of the women, and they're seeing more women and they'll say, I did not become quote unquote addicted or become an alcoholic per se until later in life, because I was, oh, let me just have the, you know, really tapping into the wine and using wine as this saving grace for, I had a little rough day. Oh, let me have some wine. Oh, it's for dinner. Let me have some wine. And then seeing it spiral out of control. Is that something you're also seeing more of? Yes. I can simplify it down pretty damn simply. It's about, do I want it or do I need it? And do I need it to relax at the end of a crazy work day and dealing with two screaming kids when I get home from work? Do I need it because my three-year-old has been running around the house all day and I've had no adult interaction and I, I'm drowning and I wanna drown? 
or do I want it because my girlfriends are coming over and I'm going to have a glass or two and just unwind and enjoy their company. You know, I, I get real concerned about anybody that drinks every night. And I know lots of people do and they do it for 50 years and they're fine. They just like a glass of wine at night. But when it turns into two or three or they're drinking alone or you kind of have to trust your gut and be honest with yourself. You know, what am I doing this for? And do I need it or do I want? It? Yeah, that's something again, like I, I shared, I struggle with because I'll catch myself if let's say like, I'm just always worried <laughs> because to your earlier point, because there's so many different levels of, you know, substance abuse and where it stems from, because it does run in my family. And, you know, I've, I've heard of people saying, well, I don't have an addictive nature. And I, I don't believe that I do, but I'm still always subconscious of that. So like, if we have a, a bottle of wine and my husband's like, well, I'm not going to really drink that. And I'm like, well, I don't want it to go to waste. And I'll have, let's say a few glasses throughout the week of like the weekdays. Mm-hmm. And I'll have one on a Monday or Tuesday. And I'm like, okay, like I have to pause and say, well, am I kind of like what you just said? I'm like, do I really need this? Do I want this? And I'm like, it's okay. Just have, you know, it's, it's fine. And then truthfully, if I do finish that bottle of wine, let's say within that week span, I'll say, okay, I'm done. And then I won't have anything. Now that's me personally, because I, again, I think that fear of what if I just really enjoy this and then I can't stop. Like there's always that little fear that comes in. So I, if I, if I recognize it, I kind of move away from it, but I know. Absolutely. You're trusting your gut. Yeah, I'm like, no, this, this, that, no, but not, I don't, you know, a lot of people might not have that intuitive nature or think, like I said, because we've turned into this wine culture, especially my generation, right, of what everything you see on social media is like, oh, well, she's having a glass of wine, so I can have a glass of wine, right? It's, it's, it's in, it's in the, the same effect of when we see people on social media and we're like, oh, I wish whatever aspect they look like they're having this great life Well, she's having a glass of wine well why can't I where they're doing this well why can't I so it was just interesting because someone had to tell me that they they have seen a lot more women in the substance abuse because of that and I, I just thought that that was kind of mind blown and it's something I wanted to talk on here so if there's any woman that is listening to this like Beth said maybe kind of take a pause and say why are you needing that or wanting that and where is it coming where is it stemming from Ladies, are you tired of feeling overworked and under-recognized for your impact at work? And are you curious about how to do the inner work to own your worth so you can feel confident making the bold asks, negotiating for more, and creating your ideal career? Ashi Perea, a previous guest, is a successful leadership and negotiation coach who is offering you the special opportunity to experience the power of private coaching with her. She will give you the tools necessary to grow your career in your own terms by being authentic in tough conversations, building bridges through negotiation, and trusting that no is not the end. Head over to www.ownyourworth.com to book an exclusive 30-minute private consultation. Okay, well, the pandemic has affected our society and we're seeing a rise in mental health issues, especially in our teenagers and young adults. Why do you think that is? And is there anything that we can possibly do as parents, as society, communities, anything? Look, social, intellectual, and emotional development were stunted during this whole, it's been two years. And so you've got kids stunted for two years and think about how much two years is in the development of a, of a child or a person, whether they're four years old or whether they're 14 years old. It, it's a lot of time that was not normal in any way, shape or form. And 
you know, when you're out of practice, you get scared to go back into a room full of classmates or you regulate your emotions correctly because, you, you know, at home you could throw a tantrum and slam the iPad down and walk out of the room, but you can't do that at school. You need to ask more open-ended questions and, and really think those through. One of the reasons that I see a lot of teens is because I'm like the non-judgmental aunt. You know, I, they can tell me anything. And they always know if it's something dangerous or harmful, we're going to find a way to, to talk to mom about it. I don't keep secrets that are harmful or dangerous, but if they want to tell me about the new boy they have a crush on or, you know, simple, the argument they had with their best friend, they know that they can talk to me and I'm going to walk them through it and talk. So as a parent, you really want to try to Ask again, open-ended questions, take the judgment and, and the worry. As worried as you are about something, you got to try to talk level-headed and, you know, like an objective bystander so that they'll open face. up to you. And, and, you know, if you're not getting anywhere, offer them different ways to talk to someone, offer it different times, you know, explain that it's an objective person that's going to, you can talk to them about anything. They're not going to report everything back to me. The first best thing is for you to have that open relationship with your kid and you not have to have a counselor. But if you have any worries, I do uh, telehealth and I do in office. I'd say 65% of my clients want to stay on telehealth. They love it. You know, they can, you know, put the three-year-old down for a nap and they can have a session or as a teenager, they can come home from school, have a snack talk to me. Somebody that works can get on a call right at five instead of having to schlep to my office. So with your teen, that they can just pick up the phone and do a video chat with me takes a little bit of the, the stigma away. And it's so used to, you know, the video way of talking that they love it. Try it first. And remember, they're going to lie to you. They're going to hide things from you. They're going to do more than you want and less than they want. And that's okay. As long as you can get it as open as you can, be as objective and non-judgmental as you can. I'm going to ask one, an addendum to that. Are, are there ways that parents could help build self-confidence in their children? Or I can help build self-confidence in my child? Whether it's, if you're a parent to someone young, like my, my little boy, and trying to instill some healthy habits from now, right? Allowing him to be angry. We talk through his emotions, all of that stuff. But then even for, again, my listeners who have older kids and, you know, maybe they didn't do some of these things, you know, cause they, they didn't uh -huh. know and now they know. So what are ways that parents can help build confidence in their children? Well, it's great to start it at four or five, but if you can't do it and you got to start it, I, I have a senior in high school that I am making his mom and dad do it with him now. It's all about rewards and consequences. We give our kids too much. I recommend, you know, presents be for like birthdays and Hanukkah or Christmas or Kwanzaa and for, you know, getting good grades, big events. Otherwise, you know, you want things to be a reward. You got great grades, you get the Pokemon cards you wanted. You have a birthday, yes, you can get that iPad. Otherwise, figure out allowances, figure out reward systems. But on the flip side, have solid consequences so that 
they know the rules, they break the rules. It's not subjective what the punishment is. You stay even keeled. Uh, life is about rewards and consequences. And it, it's about going there and then back to letting them go appropriately at the appropriate age. Let them start in middle school advocating for themselves with their teachers make their own lunch, make their own bed, do their own homework. Yes, you can check it, but should you be sitting there, unless it's a, you know, a kid with learning difficulties, should you be sitting there, you know, walking them through every bit of their homework? No, let, let them do it and then check it. We got to let go. We, we got to make them independent when they're four and eight and 15 so that they'll be independent functioning adults. Yeah, and to the point of that, that is really the, the 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 foundation or where it stems from to be confident, right? Because I guess it makes sense in hearing you say that I'm, I'm not a, a psychologist, but the psychology of it of, of thinking it and other licensed mental health therapists that I've spoken to is the whole concept of I guess if you're letting them be independent, then you're trusting them. They know that you're trusting them that they're making that they're able to make this decision, whatever decision that may be. Which and it doesn't then, mean they aren't shouldn't be unsupervised and they shouldn't correct. be appropriate decisions. You know, you're you're, you're not going to let your ten year old decide it's okay to watch Fatal Attraction. You know, <laughs> for lack of a better example, but. But within the right means, you got to give them some independence and they need to know that rules are rules that, you know, yes, I'm going to give you some independence. But, you know, if you're not allowed to stay up past nine o'clock, nine o'clock is bedtime, period. So I'm not saying that there, there shouldn't be some very set rules, but that they should have some chores and some responsibilities that you let them do on their own. Well, yeah, I mean, my son is four and although sometimes it's painstakingly where I have to do some deep breaths because like he gets stressed on his own and I, and I owe all that credit to my husband because he's taught him from goodness. I want to say probably three that he can loop his belt (laughs) and it's the cutest thing and it can still take time. And sometimes I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, like, I just want to do this and and get it over with. But I have to remind myself and my husband, again, he's really good with that. He'll look at me and be like, no, like you know, no, like let him do it. And now it's gotten to the point that, yeah, he knows when eight o'clock the timer, we have to tell him a couple of times we'll go in his room. He buttons up, he puts on his little uniform, his pants, and it's a thing. So to your point, that's, I guess would be a good example of something within boundaries that he could do himself. He feels independent. He feels confident with it. And we're trusting him to do it, or even me letting him pick out his clothes and certain things like that. I think, I think that's a, that's a really good point. And then I would also imagine in just the words that we tell our, our child, like, I'm so, so particular. I tell him all the time, you're kind, you're confident, you're strong. I used to say you're brave and I'm like, yeah, he's brave. And I'm like, I think also it's just really him knowing, no, you're confident. You can be confident in who you are, regardless of what it is, because now we're at that age. And even though he's only four of having these big emotions or certain kids aren't playing with him and talking through that and being like, it's okay. You're still this. I feel like that is probably one of the hardest things of motherhood, parenthood, because I have to talk through this at, with my child who's four, when I'm mentally exhausted from the day and it could be easily to be dismissive and say, 
uh-huh okay we'll find someone else to play with or get over it it happened but no I let him have that moment I let him express it we talk through it and to me that is probably at, at least for me one of the difficult parts because I, although like I said I'm mentally exhausted I don't have the patience for I have 20 million things to do but I'm like this is his time and I'm just hoping and praying that it, it will pay off as he gets older absolutely and it will and what are some ways that parents can connect with their teens and young adult children before we kind of get into maybe some other services you provide and how sure. people can connect with you? Well, I had a client when I was in medical sales and my boys were little. And he said to me, don't lead your kid to activities, follow them into what they want to do. So if your kid wants to do karate and you played soccer throughout your lifetime, you know, let them do karate. You can introduce them to the soccer, but if they're not into it, you know, if they love this particular video game, you know, ask them questions about it. Let them show you things on the video game. Do I play any of that stuff? No, but I try to express interest. The greatest thing you can do, or at least if your kid is into any TV shows, pick a show to walk with your, watch with your kid. My kid and I watched all of Walking Dead. Did I think I would like a zombie show? But it was great. It was our Sunday night thing. So follow them. Get them to lead you to do some things together. And what are some the, all the services you provide? How people can connect with you? I know you say you do do telehealth. So does that mean that you can talk with someone who's in Boston or in New York? Or do you have to be licensed in that state? How does that work? I, I am only licensed in Florida. And different types of clients that I work with. I work with a lot of moms that are struggling with all the juggling and often some of their negative core values or, you know, I'm not good enough or I'm responsible for everything. And I work really hard with them to, to ease up on themselves and take personal time. I, of course, work with a lot of trauma victims. I, I by happens chance, got my trauma training before the Douglas shooting here down in, in Parkland, Florida. So I have a lot of experience with hundreds of trauma clients. So big or small, I work with trauma patients. I work with people that are recovering from substance abuse. They've already been to treatment. I work with families to try to get their family members into treatment. I will work with somebody that's, as I said, dealing with weed, marijuana dependence only. If, if I feel somebody is is an addict, you know, I'll work with the family to get them into a treatment center. I don't like to be responsible for somebody that is in active addiction. I also am Gottman trained in, in relationship counseling. So I work with individuals struggling with relationship problems. And I, I work with couples struggling with relationship problems. And lastly, I, I, I do a lot of parenting coaching to help you with your kids, but I don't work with little kids. I can direct you uh, to anyone under middle school age. I, I'll happy to direct you to an appropriate therapist that does a lot of play therapy because I think it's imperative. I do tons of work with teens and young 20 somethings. So that's a big hot spot with me. As far as how to connect, I, I mean, my website is Beth, B-E-T-H, Alhanti, A-L-H-A-N-T-I dot com. So it's pretty simple. Mm -hmm. uh, my phone number is 954-260-9056. Uh, 
I'm, I'm a part of a larger practice, which is why I can direct you to other counselors if you're not up my alley, but I, I myself as an independent contractor. So I like to schedule my own appointments and, and work directly with my clients. So BethAlhanty.com. Let me know if I can help you or help you find the right person. I had two more questions before I kind of ask specific questions related to you and what you do for your own mental health. But is there a commonality? I don't, I don't know if you can answer this. I don't think it would, it, it will interfere with any privacy issues, but now that you are nine years deep, is there some commonality that you see in what teenagers are going through is, is one of the biggest things like you hear them saying, I'm never heard, or I feel so not supported, or I feel like nobody pays attention. Like what are some of those commonality things that you hear that a, a lot of teenagers or young adults have told you? Well, there's this struggle to be independent and feel like they, it's their time. And yet they're so unsure of themselves about a lot of things. So it's this internal struggle for them. Unfortunately, it's a lot of entitlement. A lot of our kids think they deserve things and haven't had to work for them. So it's scary because they don't know how hard the world is going to smack them when they get out. And a lot of it is these ideas that, you know, this is what I say to every parent. We are all going to try our hardest, even the worst parent in the world, because they have mental problems or substance problems or whatever. In their own mind, they're trying as hard as they can. But the best intentioned parents, we try, we get them into activities, we do for them, we expose them to all that we can, and we still mess them up. And they still, you know, everybody has mommy and daddy issues and it's okay. And some of them learn to work through those on their own. Some of them grow out of them. Some of them get a little extra help, but you know, you, you can't blame yourself if you're doing your best, you know, you, you just gotta, if they need it, they get help. Sometimes they get exposed to things beyond your control. The, the kids are in a, the social media thing is just a killer. I'm so happy. I didn't grow up with it. The, the stuff, the, the, you know, the bullying that happens on social media is, is 10 times what we ever faced. The feelings of being left out. You know, when you look at Facebook and you notice that some old friends of yours are getting together and you feel that little twinge, which we all do, right? The kids are feeling it tenfold. So. It's just kind of being there for them and doing as much as you can while letting them be independent beings. Tough, yeah. tough, tight rope. Absolutely. And actually I have an episode that's coming out with a mental health therapist who specifically only works with Gen Zers and we dive all into social media. I know that we can probably have a whole, you and I have even yes. a whole nother separate conversation about that in your own thing with that. Cause yeah, it's, it's, it's gotta be difficult to navigate that and to help parents deal with that. And again, like you said, as if we feel it as adults, imagine what our children are feeling with it. And she actually had recommended that she doesn't think any child should get any social media until they're in high school at the minimum. <laughs> Good luck with that. Um, I know. Good yeah. luck with that. I mean, we, and we sure. could talk about that. The, the yeah. hard part is <laughs> that's a whole nother you don't thing. Want, you don't want your kid to be an outcast. Correct. You know, you don't want them left out of things because so it's, it, again, it's a tightrope. You gotta, I know. I'm much more onto limitations. You, know, you yeah. can give them their phone in middle school, 
but it goes on the charger at nine o'clock at night, or you get it from seven to nine after your homework's finished and after your response. I think keeping them totally away from it is a mistake because they'll they'll be left out of too much. It's boundaries, limits. No, I agree. Consequences I, I, and rewards. For sure. I think I, exactly. I mean, to, to your point into life, like if you completely remove them from it, because that's not how life works, right? We can't completely remove things or not expose because yes, you might not deal with it in your household, but there is the real world out there. And all it takes is for someone to introduce something to them at school, which is why I've always been an advocate for having open conversations. I was raised that way where I know some of my friends weren't. So they believe like, no, we don't talk about certain taboo topics because we just don't. But then I'm like, but they're going to get it anyway. And to me, I'd rather them get it from me and my husband and, you know, hoping that they trust what we've done in them than to get it from their friend, Jessica or Michael, who, right. you know, got it from someone else and a whole thing. But I know that can and be, it'll a whole, be a little of both for sure, because same, that's how I grew up. I had at my parents and then you, you had your friends and then you kind of hope that they're doing like what I did, which was, okay, well, my parents said this, this, and then they, they then can make their own decision from there. Right. The only other thing I want to ask you is unfortunately, you know, we had the shooting in Buffalo. There was another shooting at a church. I know you dealt with, you've dealt with a lot of trauma. I feel like we've become desensitized to all of that. It actually is mind boggling to me that we're still going on about life where all of these shootings have occurred. And it's like nothing. Is there anything you can speak on there? Are there any ways that if there's anything you could even talk about it in a small high level way of not becoming desensitized to all of that stuff? Or is it just part of what it is? And it's just the reality of what we're living in right now. Well, I have my own personal opinions outside of psychology, and I won't go into those. I will say that it's hard to make sense of all of this. There's a wonderful book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. And it's about a Holocaust survivor. He was a psychiatrist in the Holocaust and he had to figure out like why all these people were surviving this and, and why they lived, like why they fought so hard to live. It's a, it's a beautiful book. It's a little bit of a difficult read, but it's a beautiful book. But I think we have to, you know, I don't believe things happen for a reason because I don't believe that somebody walks into a grocery store and shoots 10 people for a reason. I don't believe that a pandemic happens and kills a million people for a reason. I do believe we can choose to make our own meaning out of something that happens. So for instance, with the Douglas shooting, some kids turned to art and started drawing and, and expressing themselves in art. Some people turned to political, political activism and dealt with it that way. Some kids decided to become mental health counselors or work in the psychology field. Some kids decided, I am going to lead a fun, fruitful, happy life, you know, to prove that that's the way it's supposed to be done after it happened. So I think we have to see what things happen in this awful world and wonderful world. and make our own meaning and figure out how to digest it and process it and move forward for ourselves. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. It's just something that I felt was relevant to speak on because it yeah. really did hit me where I was like, wow, 
like all of this is happening and you know we're just going about and doing but I guess to your point yeah you have to do with what you can and make your their own decision with that so thank you for sharing that okay so what do you do to take care of your own mental health how do you stay grounded how do you get you know refreshed and reset and how do you release all the stuff that you got going on too (laughs) I focus on the little things and the gratitudes that I have, the good things as much as I can. I enjoy binge watching, you know, the Gilded Age or Bridgerton. I love having my cup of coffee with the Today Show every morning. I, somebody once told me, oh boy, you're easily amused. And that, that's probably the highest compliment you could give me because that's what's going to make you happy. That's focusing on the good things about life because every single day, I don't care how bad the day is, you can find three good things that happened that day. I had a great cup of coffee. My dog was really funny this morning. I saw a friend on the street that I hadn't seen in a really long time. We got to chat for a minute. There's always three things. And if you can focus on those gratitudes, you're going to have a happier life. I love that. What is some of the best advice that has made the most impact for you in your life and something that you tend to say often to other people? I guess it's go for it. You know, if you don't ever try, yeah, you won't fail, but you won't succeed either. So, you know what? I've had job rejections. I've had romance rejections, you know, but I've also doing something that I love. I have a Oh, a husband that I adore and a beautiful family. If you, if you don't try, you'll never succeed. So go for it. Love it. And are there any systems or things that you have that keep you on your toes? Any hacks, any organizational hacks, business hacks, anything that kind of keeps Beth in line? <laughs> well, I, I'm a huge, you know, list person. If you let it sit in your head and ruminate around, it just makes you worry. But if you make lists and you prioritize and you figure out, well, maybe this isn't so important, move it to the next day because you can do that on your iPhone, you know, or your Android, you know, get done what's the top five things. And then if you have to move things around, and actually, if you move something around enough, you say, you know what, I'm never going to do this. It's not important. And just take it off the darn list. So get it out of your head and put it on paper and look at it logically and it'll take a lot of anxiety and clutter out of your brain. I love that. Any other final thoughts to the podcast community before we part ways here? No, I, it's just been my pleasure talking to you and, you know, make sure as mommies, take care of yourself first. If you're not well, then your kids aren't going to be well. You deserve to be happy. I love that. Thank you so much, Beth, for coming on, for sharing your story, for sharing those amazing tips, continued blessings to you for love and light. And we'll talk soon. Thank you for joining me this week on the Mama's Know Best, We Got Something to Say podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by our sponsor, NGC Consulting, where you can find them at NicoleGConsulting.com. For more motherhood resources, check out themotherhoodvillage.com. Make sure to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss an episode. And if you found value in this episode, 
we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or recommendation to a friend works too. And join us next time for another amazing conversation. Continued blessings to you all for love and light.